you're one of those people and you're only getting $40 per share for your GameStop share, and the market really was $40.02, why didn't you get that? So wouldn't you be better off to pay Robinhood a tenth of a penny commission and get a better price? Yes. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and I am joined by Rachel Sass per huge. Hello. What's going on, Rachel? Nothing much going on here. What about you? Probably all the same thing uh, as you are doing because we work together. So I feel like it's <laughs> almost anticlimactic to see each other on the podcast because we're talking to each other all day long. I know. I know. Yeah, Pretty much. So, but I didn't get no to tell offense. you anything earlier. Yeah. If I don't, uh, if I don't exhibit the requisite level of excitement to see you, uh, it's just because of that. All right. Sorry. I'll have to start saving some tidbits then for for podcast night. So at least I have something. You know, I do have something that we just did. It's pretty exciting tonight. Okay. Um, exciting and quotes, I guess, for for my world now. So one of my uh, one of my dogs is incredibly well. All my dogs are incredibly spoiled, but one dog in particular, the baby, is just absolutely crazy. He's a mini Aussie, so high energy. He only drinks from faucets now. I don't know how we got to this point. He loves like like you turn on like the tub faucet and it's gotten to the point where he will sit in the tub during the day and just bang on the faucet. And I'm worried my dog is dehydrated. So now I have to go get up and go turn on the faucet for him to drink. He refuses to drink out of water bowls. So finally, we thought this is this is not gonna be okay. So we bought a little like doggy water fountain from like Chewy and it worked tonight and he's drinking from it. So I am so, in that, in today's world, in my world, that is like the biggest accomplishment of the day. That's yes. Congratulations. That's a huge win. Mm -hmm. Really anytime that you can satisfy an animal like uh, a dog or a cat who otherwise just essentially runs the household, it's a big win. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't have to get up anymore. I don't have to get up. I hear the banging <laughs> in the tub of turn on the faucet for me. It's got a nice faucet now. <laughs> yeah, nicely done. Well played, Mrs. Sass. Well played. Yeah, think outside the box. Yes. All right. Well, thinking about uh, boxes, uh, I thought we would talk about or get get updated I should say on the the status of uh, financial advisory, and we we've done it a few times with them in the past, and so I thought it makes sense to bring him back. So Doug Nelson is with us again, no relation, not not because I don't want to be, but no relation. So Doug, thank you very much for joining us again. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always great to uh, get a chance to hang out with you and Rachel. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, we we like to get updated. We like to to keep our finger at least uh, in the wind, so to speak, on what's going on in your world because it affects our world. It affects everyone's world. Um, we're talking about basic economies and what transpired last year. We all saw a devastating blow in uh, in March of last year with the onset of COVID and the rocked the financial world and the economy just generally. Since then, we've seen quite a recovery and uh, some interesting things going on. Well, let's start there then. What what is what is sort of the state of things? so to speak, in uh, 2021, obviously not all things, but things in your world? Well, the state of things in 2021, 
um, are what we would call in our world becoming more normal. We're seeing uh, some of the same volatility that we saw last year. However, the risk return parameters of a lot of items seem to be getting back to somewhere in normalcy. What I mean by that is the the importance of investing based on science as, oppo as opposed to investing based on what we think is that risk and return are related, the very basics. Risk and return are related. Stocks earn more than bonds. Why? Because they're riskier. Small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks over lengthy time periods. Why? Because they're riskier. Very simple. Value stocks outperform growth stocks over lengthy time periods, typically. Why? Because they're riskier. So seeing all those start to fall into place has been very encouraging for us. Combine that with seeing the 10-year treasury yield creeping up would lead us to, be, to believe that there are, um, or excuse me, that there is an increase in consumer confidence. So people are feeling better about things, apparently. Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know what that'll mean going forward, but it is nice to see risk return parameters at least approaching something that we have seen historically. It, it looks more familiar, I take it. Yes. It's uh, for those of us that are very science oriented, it's very comforting. I hate to use the term normal um, just because people then expect, OK, well, well, uh, you know, I was listening to, to Brent and Rachel's podcast and Doug said things are getting normal again. That means the stock market's going to return 10 percent in 2021. No, no, that's not what it means. What it means is that risk and return parameters seem to be approaching what they have historically. The interesting thing about that is we. We develop these expectations based on history. And if you go back to the stock market uh, very beginning where we have really reliable data in 1926, the average return for the S&P 500 has been somewhere right very, very close to 10%. And you know how many times it's actually hit that average since 1926? 10 times. Okay, so you have to wait lengthy time periods to realize these returns. Patience is the important part. And again, don't 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 invest money based on what we think is going to happen tomorrow. Invest money based on what we know. And what we know is risk and return are related. I think that's a huge point. I've heard a lot of clients recently where a year ago today, you know, everyone is so uncertain. Oh my goodness, what am I going to with my money? You get that emotional response that we had talked about before. I need to take my money out. And then you get to this year and they're thinking, well, actually, we did pretty well last year. You know, we saw a little bit of that increase right at the end. But then they're like, well, this year, I'm not too sure. Maybe it's going to go back down or maybe, it's, you know, and so it's it's starting to seem that people are, are finally getting back to that point where they're like, OK, like you were saying, Doug, it's it's to that that's normal sense of there's not this huge uncertainty anymore. You're going to go back to the normal sense of uncertainty, I guess, with the market. Yeah, normal, normal sense of uncertainty. That's a nice term. I kind of like that. One. <laughs> normal sense of impending doom. How about that? <laughs> we, could, we could really doctor that up. The interesting <laughs> I, thing is, I saw exactly that same thing, Rachel, back in March. Um, you know, when things were tanking, I... I was talking with people that were saying, I'm really concerned about this. And what was the solution? The solution was to stay disciplined, stay with the strategy you had, do not react, don't create a bunch of, of um, taxable income if you don't need to, stay disciplined, stay the course, and everyone was fine. 
they're very happy now. I also had individuals who said, hey, Doug, man, things are tanking. Now's a great time to buy. Here's another million dollars. Get it invested right away into equities because I want to take advantage of this. And they did really well too. So it didn't matter what you were reacting to. Uh, either emotion was fine so long as you stayed disciplined. Well, and I think to your point, if you're if you have a mindset that's a, a long-term mindset, or or you're sort of looking at risk over a long period of time historically, then in the in the short term, it takes the guesswork out of it because it's mm -hmm. it's impossible to predict the short-term risk and reward. You know what your the actual reward you're going to get for your risk, but then when you stretch it out over time, you at least have the historical data to tell you like, okay, there's a pretty clear path, and it's. It's not that much of a mystery. Yeah. And then you get those one-offs, like, uh, you know, the whole GameStop debacle. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, debacle. Well, some people did well. <laughs> some people did. Yeah. Yeah. But, the you know, the the hows and the whys and, and what occurred there is really, really interesting. And there's a whole bunch of speculation around the whys. And we're probably not going to know for quite some time. I mean, there are over 50 pending lawsuits um, around it. There's going to be a whole bunch of information. And again, I think what we'll find is we've talked about this before, probably on, on every podcast, that we as humans look for that singular cause and effect relationship. And it rarely ever exists. And I think we'll find the same thing, too, with, with GameStop. But there are some things that we can identify that say, yeah, that probably had something to do with it. So can you kind of take a few steps back, Doug, and for, for any of our listeners who don't know, you know, they may have heard of the, you know, let's go to the moon, but they're not entirely sure exactly what happened with GameStop. Can you kind of explain it and, and what the whole debacle was? Well, there were, um, there were quite a few people uh, that started wanting to make sure that GameStop, the stock, did okay. So they started talking about it on social media. And then at the same time, they were aware that there were a large, of lar a, a large number of institutional investors, hedge funds, mutual funds, you know, larger entities that were shorting the stock because they didn't believe that it was a good bet. And they knew that they would have been incentivized to see the price of GameStop go down. So they all rallied and got together and said, hey, let's put a bunch of news out there. Let's go out and buy more of GameStop and push the price up. And lo and behold, it, it appeared to be successful. Now, from there, we don't know. Could that have triggered some things that in the industry that we call programmed trades? There could have been a lot of institutional investors, okay, not the people that were talking on social media, but institutional investors that said, hey, if any of these stocks, and maybe GameStop was one of them, starts moving very rapidly up, buy it. And so without ever thinking, computer trades, automatic um, program trades kicked in and started buying shares. Well, when they bought shares, that increased the demand. And when the demand gets increased, price goes up. So it just pushed it up and up and up and up. Now, a lot of this was being done through an app that makes it very easy for people to trade stocks called Robinhood. And everyone thought, oh, Robinhood, that's great. They're going to, they have zero commissions, right? So we can go in there and trade. They're doing the right thing for the little guy. And, you know, they're going to 
steal from the rich and give to the poor. Well, not exactly. However, they do have, you know, zero commissions for these trades. So people were getting on there trading. They, I guess it appears, and again, I can't tell you this for sure, but it appears they, they started getting close to violating um, their ability to transact in some of these thinly traded stocks. And so the SEC jumped in and said, hey, we need more capital in Robinhood in order for you to continue trading. So they halted trading on GameStop for what, about, about a day, I think, maybe a day and a half. And during that time period, a lot of the people with short positions, now a short position is very simply, I'm going to sell a stock that I don't own and I will supply that stock later on. The theory being that if I can sell it today at its current price, let's say $10, and then a month from now, I can buy it at $5 and deliver those shares. I just made $5 a share. That's, that's how they were shorting these positions, the larger institutions. So all of the people out there that were trading GameStop pushed it up. Maybe some um, program trades kicked in to push it even further. Then the major source of those trades really being Robinhood ceased because they, they had to stop trading. And over the next couple of days, the stock plummeted again. So we don't really know what happened to the institutional investors during those couple of days, because there are, there are, also, there are also other methods to trade stocks. You can do after hours trading and block trading. Large institutions very commonly will cut deals on large blocks of stock while markets are not open or even while they are open and post them right away. They'll post them typically as soon as markets open in the morning if they're executing these block trades after hours. So let's just say that um, I was a mutual fund that held a whole bunch of GameStop stock and <clears throat> I saw it going up and up and up and I thought, okay, this is good, but I want out. And maybe I've got 50,000 shares of it. Well, GameStop doesn't trade 50,000 shares on a normal day. It doesn't trade a whole lot of shares. So I'm looking for a way to get rid of that without affecting the price. And lo and behold, I see it rocketing up and I hear about um, these hedge funds out there that have shorted it. And so I call up one of these hedge funds and say, hey, you're short this stock. It started trading today at 10 bucks a share. Uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Well, let's just use some examples. No, look, it's fairly close. It started trading today at 40 bucks a share and it closed at 100. Tell you what, you're going to need to cover your short position. So you need the shares. I've got 50,000 and I need to get rid of them. I don't expect to get 100 bucks a share, but I'll sell you all 50,000 shares of these of GameStop for 65 bucks a share if you'll take them all. Well, that hedge fund might say yes and decrease its loss and clear that position so that it doesn't get beat up even worse if GameStop continues up the following day or when it's traded again publicly. So there could have been some of that going on. We, we really don't know. And then this whole idea that, oh, Robinhood's this great, great company out there. Yeah, they're going to do all these wonderful things for all of us small guys at zero commission. Well, there's the thing, this thing in the industry called trading or um, paying for order flow. Now, very simply, all that is, is say that I like to trade stocks and I'm good at it and I trade a whole bunch of stocks. I'm a great big institution and I deal with large mutual funds so I can get rid of 100,000 shares of GameStop 
probably any day that I want because I know the right people to call. Well, Robin Hood's sitting there going, well, we don't know those right people to call because we're dealing with all the mom and pops out there and they're only selling a few shares at a time. So, um, Doug, since you know all these people, won't you pay us for that order flow? Will you pay us if we give you all of the stock sales that we have? I'll say, yeah, I'll give you a penny sh a share for every stock that you let me trade. And that way, Robinhood, you don't have to have a trading desk, a bunch of traders trying to execute all these trades, stuff that you're not good at, that I'm good at. So I'll pay you a penny a share. So I just paid Robinhood a penny a share to trade orders that are coming from their clients. I get all of these orders. I lump them into big groups. I make, you know, maybe I've got um, a thousand different individuals. I lump all of their game stock together. I go out and find a buyer for that. I take a look at my average cost associated with those shares at the market price plus my penny. Then I also want to make another penny. And I know that I can only sell those shares out on the open market for, let's say, $40.02. Well, if I can sell them for $40.02 and only pay Robinhood's people who are looking to sell those shares $40, then I get to pay Robinhood my one penny a share and I get to make my one penny a share profit. Now, the problem with that is you say, well, hold it, that's just efficiency. Well, that's kind of efficiency, but if you're one of those people and you're only getting $40 per share for your GameStop share and the market really was $40.02, why didn't you get that? So wouldn't you be better off to pay Robinhood a tenth of a penny commission and get a better price? Yes. So that's going to be some investigation into this. Is paying for order flow, um, is it really the way we want our markets to work? Now, on top of that, I really know about momentum. Momentum is something that exists in stock markets. A stock that's headed up tends to continue up. A stock that's headed down tends to continue down. If I'm handling all the orders of GameStop for Robinhood and the price is going up, and all I'm getting from, <laughs> from Robinhood are orders to buy, I have a pretty good indication that that stock's going to continue to get pushed up. So aren't I smart to go out there and buy 250,000 shares of GameStop at $40.02 a share and then turn around and fill those orders to all those people at $40.05 a share? Yeah. So... I, there's going to be a lot of investigation into this to see what comes out. I don't think there's any one thing that we can look at and say, well, that's wrong. We fixed that and we never would have had this problem. No, not really. Uh, th there's going to be a bunch of stuff. And some of it will get fixed. Some of it won't. There's also a whole bunch of news. Um, boy, I'm really rambling off here, aren't I? There's keep going, also, keep going. I I want to circle. I want to, okay. I want to circle back to the idea of, of, of no commission trading. Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, there's an interesting tidbit I want to bring up. So uh, carry on, then we'll come back okay. to that. There's a there's a whole bunch of speculation out there that there was some insider type of pressure on different companies um, to halt trading so that these large institutions that were very short GameStop could get their their positions covered without getting beat up too bad. But you know you're not going to know that until you know everybody's iPhone and text messages are subpoenaed and 
<laughs> and all of that stuff. So it'll be interesting to see. So I um, had noticed over the last few years, as I'm sure you did, that quite a number of the large institutional um, investment firms, the Fidelities, the Schwabs, the Vanguards, had advertised uh, zero commission trading. Mm -hmm. And I actually noticed recently that Vanguard put out a notice to customers. I happen to be a Vanguard customer at notifying us that they actually were going to charge a commission on trades. They're they going to charge a fee for trades, which was the complete opposite of what they were doing previously. They were previously, it's like, you know, you could trade any Vanguard funds for free. And I wonder, uh, speculating here, of course, I don't know, and I have no sort of information otherwise, uh, but I wonder if it's tied to what you're describing, that the, the institution of, or the sheen of, free trading, quote unquote, free trading is under the microscope and some of these institutions are backpedaling a bit. I, you know, I hope so. Uh, I, I, it's people are in the business to make money. So if they're saying this is free when it's really not, that's, I, I don't like that. Just be honest about it. Charge a fair price and, and do a good job at what you do. There in the early days, well, not in the early days, but probably 15 years ago or so, there were a whole bunch of mutual funds. Uh, when people were really getting in interested in mutual funds, there were mutual funds traded on almost every um, platform, almost every large institution would have zero cost mutual fund trading. And that was going to be a big deal. I mean, retailers were jumping in. The best example, and please don't get me wrong, um, uh, Charles Schwab has always done a good job. I like them. I use them. I have accounts there. They do a, a very good job. They inter introduced it. And with a little bit of digging, and this is this is the, the problem with so many parts of the financial investing world, is that fees and costs are hidden so well. Um, what you need to do is just lay all that out so everyone can see. What was going on is Schwab on their platform had no transaction cost mutual funds. You can buy all of these at no transaction cost. And back then, transaction costs for mutual fund were, you know, 25, 30 bucks. So they, they were meaningful in many cases. Zero transaction cost funds, though. And there were only some of them. And so you kind of wondered why. If you do a little investigating, <clears throat> The internal costs of a mutual fund is called their operating expense. The average operating expense for all funds traded on Morningstar are right at 1.4% per year. Now that's that's higher than, than what I would prefer, but it's, it's common. So these internal costs are taken out before the investor gets their profit. So if my mutual fund earns $10 and the cost is 1%, then I lose my 10 cents, okay? I end up with $9.90 profit, even though the gross profit was $10. Now, what, what Schwab was doing and what the other institutions were doing the same thing was saying, you know, there's this special provision uh, where a fund can pay back to a distributor a fee. And so the mutual fund operating expenses for those no fund fees were going up by three-tenths of 1% per year. So instead of Schwab getting their 25 or 30 bucks for trading that mutual fund, they were getting three-tenths of 1% per year for as long as those people owned that fund. It was a huge moneymaker. And yet it could be advertised as no transaction cost. The costs were just buried inside the fund and, and kicked back to Schwab. Terrible, but, uh, well, I hate to 
to say terrible. That's not what I would like to see the industry industry doing, shall we say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you then about uh, interest rates because you brought that up. What what do you think as if we see interest rates start to creep up, which we've been watching it too. Uh, in our world, we sort of try to leverage up these interest rates to the benefit of our clients. And uh, for example, not too long ago, we did a promissory note for a client. It was a family promissory note for 0.25%. That was the interest rate we could use to do that transaction. And we all kind of patted ourselves on the back. We're like, yeah, that's basically zero. That's pretty good. So as interest rates creep up, it, you know, it, it cuts into our ability to do some of these transactions. So that's just on our side. What about on your side as, as interest rates start to creep up? What do you think that means for investors? I think for investors, you know, it, it would be nice to see bonds actually earning some money. So that that would be nice. Um, plus, again, that interest rate coming up, that's an indication that people who are issuing bonds, including the federal government, are having to pay people more to entice them to invest in bonds. So that means that people have a better place to put their money. Now, is that stocks and real estate? Probably. So they're saying, why put my money in bonds and only earn a tiny bit when I can earn more money over here? So it's going to put pressure on those issuers of bonds to start increasing those rates. But the interesting thing about that, Brent, is that um, remember when rates declined quite some time ago? Since then, everyone has been saying, stay very short in your bond exposure. Now, by short, I mean short in duration, short in maturities, because the longer term bond will get hurt worse if rates go up. So everyone was saying, stay short, stay short, because rates are going to go up. And then what? We've been sitting around now for seven, eight years at least, <laughs> and rates haven't done anything. So in the meantime, we've accepted very, very low rates of return because we're very, very short in our bond maturities. When we could have earned more if we would have been out further, you know, out in the eight or nine year range instead of two years, had we not been in fear of rising interest rates. And that's something we should probably review for the listeners just to make sure everyone remembers that as rates go up, underlying bond values typically go down. And the reason for that is people want to, uh, they, they have to compete with the market. So as an example, um, if I have a $100,000 bond at a 4% coupon rate, that means that I get $4,000 a year in interest on that bond. If someone comes along and says, hey, you know, rates are changing, and now that same $100,000 bond, it only com commands a rate of 5%, not 4%, because rates have gone up, then the value of that $100,000 bond will go down to the extent that it needs to so that my now effective rate of getting that $4,000 a year will be equal to 5%. So effectively, the value of that bond will go from, if it's a very long-term bond, just again, simple example, from 100,000 down to 80, because 5% of that 80,000 gets me my $4,000 a year again. So that's that's yeah. the way that it works. Now, the opposite is true, too. When rates are dropping, bond bond values go up. Uh, if, you know, if I'm sitting on a bond 
that is a, a 6% coupon and I paid $100,000 for it, I can sell it for a lot more than $100,000 today because the prevailing interest rate for that bond is much less than 6%. So it can create, you know, as, as rates go up, it can create opportunities for somebody who's buying bonds because they can presumably buy them at a discount uh, and get a similar rate of return that they could get in the open market, but they've spent less money. If you think of the principal amount being less, they've spent less money on the principal amount to get the same rate of return just because they're buying somebody else out of their their bond that now has a lower coupon rate attached to it. Correct. Correct. Yep. One thing I noticed, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Doug. So when the eight, when the rates have been going up recently, we saw tech kind of take a hit um, in the last, I would say, month. And I don't know if you'd call it a correction or almost a crash. It, it took a hit quite a bit, right? You've seen mm -hmm. Tesla, Apple, all the, the tech companies. And I've seen a lot of people speculate that it's because the interest rates are starting to rise. Um, what would you say to that? Uh, first of all, I would say it'd be great if there was one singular thing that gives rise to that. Again, singular cause and effect relationships are very, very hard to identify, and they, they don't happen all that, all that commonly. Um, I would look at it and say, okay, do a lot of these tech companies carry a lot of debt? If they have a lot of debt on their books and their cost of that debt is going to go up, then the value of their shares will go down because their future earnings expectations should come down. If my interest charges are going to go up in 2021 and 2022, then my earnings will go down from what I expected them to be in 2021 and 2022. So I think, I think there could be a direct relationship there. And I think that's going to be true with a lot of companies that are carrying a lot of debt on their books. Yeah, I'm very curious about the real estate industry, actually, because I think, um, you know, we've had a lot of uh, investment in real estate, over, certainly over the last couple of years. And they were they were able to make a lot of that investment very attractive because they had really low rates on their loans. Well, when when all of a sudden the interest rates are higher and now you're trying to do the thing that they like to do in the real estate industry, which is renegotiate these, these loans and cash out and do all that kind of, you know, suck equity out of proper properties that they've improved. It's going to be higher, harder for them to do it. And if they have if they have loans that are that are rate sensitive, you can see you can see real estate investors get pinched. Yep. Yeah. We've seen that um, over and over in the real estate world where, uh, you know, the cost of that capital gets to be such a burden that people just have a hard time turning a profit anymore. So, you know, we, we could see that. The same thing is true with some of um, the individual purchasers of even a primary residence. Right now, there are some very attractive rates on five-year adjustable rate mortgages. Very attractive. Uh, but it hasn't been that long ago that we saw those really cause some problems for people because those rates adjust. And a five years from now, that rate is higher and you can't refinance at a much lower rate. Then you've got to pay that higher interest rate. And we don't know. There could be another, another pandemic of some type. We really don't understand it. The other thing that really intrigues me about real estate, and everyone keeps saying, yeah, it's just starting. It's just starting is this whole COVID idea and all of these buildings downtown that everyone's saying, oh, nobody's going to need those anymore because everyone's moved out because they're afraid of a pandemic. And we've discovered we don't need those offices anymore. Where did the two of you spend your day working today? 
I was actually in our office, <laughs> but that oh, okay. was because I, was at home. <laughs> I had I had contractors in my house working on drywall, so I went down to the office. <laughs> okay, well, you you are the exception right now, Brent. And so what a lot of companies are finding out is you really don't need all of that office space. So you'd think that in these large areas with all this office space, that prices would start, you know, everyone was saying, oh, they're, they're gonna they're gonna have to plummet, you know, and everyone was afraid, but that's not what appears to be occurring. It doesn't, uh, there's some been some downward price pressure, yes, but no devastating, uh, you know, blow to that market. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And can those building owners repurpose them? If that really is the case, if demand is, is squelched because of people saying, hey, you know, instead of driving into the city every day, I can stay at my house in Connecticut and work, then will it decrease demand for large office complexes in, in uh, downtown New York? And what will then those buildings be repurposed for? Will the price still be the same? Yep. I, I actually think that the, um, I mean, it's an, it's an interest, interesting industry to me, the commercial real estate industry. I am not as convinced, of course, I've certainly been wrong about these sorts of things in the past, but I am not as convinced that people are going to flee office buildings. Um, and one reason why I, I think that, or I comfort myself into thinking that, I should say, is one thing that I think we've proven through the pandemic and using Zoom and video conferencing, et cetera, is that as impersonable, as impersonal as that can be, and as disconnected as all of that can be, and you could just be siloed in your house and working and never see anybody, et cetera, people still want to be with people. And that has proven true even during the pandemic and maybe been emphasized uh, during the pandemic. So I think that people wanting to be around people element is not going away. And so I'm not as convinced that people are going to flee those office buildings. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you there. People do want to see other people, but I've also been surprised at the number of the people that um, you know I, I work with that say, hey, Doug, this has been uh, great. These meetings via Zoom are very efficient. So let's keep having these twice a year. And then once a year, you come out and we just go to dinner. You know, they still want that contact but they really like the also the efficiency of an electronic meeting. So I, I think we're going to find that middle ground somewhere. And then again, um, we have a number of people that still, they, they love coming to the office. I think it's the candy dish. I think that's it, you know. Can't get enough of those cheese yeah. candies. We miss that. <laughs> I agree. I think I've seen about like a 50-50 split. And I think in... I see a lot of people, especially in my generation, where you you've you've seen the efficiency, right? And like I've told people before, right? I love seeing you in person, but that one hour meeting is actually a three hour meeting when you've taken now my my drive time going to and from the office. I could do so much more in a day if I just see you on Zoom. But I'd love to see you in person. So I'd, I'd see that middle ground. I think where I've seen a lot of people really adamant about staying in the office is in particular areas of the service industry where you just crave that human interaction. And I've seen a lot of people where if you've had commercial real estate space now, they're trying to fill it with more, you know, fun services that we've missed this last year, right? You're seeing more 
um, you know, more the, the high intensity training gyms pop up in those spaces. You're seeing more of the, the independent hair salons, nails, things like that, where you just really want that interaction with other people, but you don't really just need like that nine to five office. I'm just sitting in front of a computer. I think those are the areas where you could see that split of some people are going to go back just because they really do want to be in the office. But other people, maybe they're just doing a lot better at home or you'll just get that 50-50 where I'm going to split my time between the week, half in the office, half at home. Yeah, I think um, I'm probably in that camp too. But the one thing I know for sure is it's going to be interesting to find out. You know, so many of these things, uh, you know, we sit around and we talk about, well, this is what's going to happen and that's what's going to happen. And and sometimes it it does, but I still find it pretty entertaining to see where all this leads. Um this is this is a fun world to live in. I, I think this is a fun time to be alive. Things are changing so rapidly. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. I was at the mall. Um, I went there to, to pick some stuff up and I was walking through and they were there with this little car, uh, Electro Mechanica or something like that. It's a three wheeled one person car with a little tiny trunk. It has um, electronic engine it goes 80 mile up to 80 miles an hour it'll go 100 miles on a single charge you can charge it with your 110 outlet in your garage and the thing costs under twenty thousand dollars but what a great little commuter thing all electronic and i'm thinking okay how long will it be before they've got little drones like that that picks you up pick you up at your house and take you downtown so that in-person thing, it might be a five-minute commute instead of that hour commute, Rachel. Oh, that would be nice. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, we, uh, As usual, could talk to you all night long, Doug, because uh, all this stuff is very interesting. And I agree. We live in exciting times, and it's always interesting to see how things shake out. Uh, we appreciate you lending your time. Anytime. This is always uh, fun for me. There's there's kind of a saying around my office that, you know, don't give Doug the microphone because you never get it back. So these <laughs> are fun for me. Fair enough. We've been warned. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.